Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Today we'll be talking about the big space industry confab that happened in Adelaide this past week with Simon Ducks. We're also going to speak with Optus Vice President of Regulatory and Public Affairs, Andrew Sheridan, about his company's business update coming up this coming week and his contention that there needs to be a root and branch relook at the incentives for telecom infrastructure investors. But first, Chris Outhouse, the CEO of the Australian Mobile Telecommunications Association, representing all the major carriers and nearly all the major vendors. It's been a tough juggling act for Chris, but he's conducted himself with first-class honours after 15 years of the job. He announced Friday he'll be stepping down. I asked him, first of all, why now? Look, it's never never a good time. I'm, I'm, I'm... I remain completely committed to the mobile sector and I've, I've just had a, 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 a complete blast working in this space for, for 15 years. But um, I looked at a moment to leave and, and there's never a good time, but I, I figured that 5G is, is, you know, the momentum is now uh, really established um, and I wanted to make sure that AMTA and, and the industry were, were um, moving strongly in that direction, and I've, I believe we are. Um, um, so I, I guess that was one of the prerequisites for me, um, and uh, I, I feel like we're in a reasonable position. It's never going to be perfect, but uh, I feel like we're in, in, in good shape. Okay, you've seen a lot of change over that time. Um, I'm, I'm guessing when you started, uh, 3G was still a new thing. Um, what, what, what were some of the standout moments of those 15 years? Well, you're right. Uh, 3G was uh, was the flavour of the month at, the, at uh, when I began. Um, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm work hard at uh, over the journey, uh, Graham, was to to try and minimise the politics um, in the mobile space. Um, I always felt that I had uh, a very strong reaction uh, to the level of unity that the industry brought together under the AMTA umbrella and a a really strong reaction to that from both major parties. Um, uh, The individuals concerned when you go back, it was Coonan and Conroy and, and, and Turnbull um, Conroy and then Fifield, Roland, Roland, Fletcher. Um, so that bipartisanship, I think, has been a, a really good thing that, that that I pursued. If you want individual moments where it's a, it's a standout, um, I, I go back to the uh, digital dividend um, and getting 126 megahertz of 700 meg spectrum into the mobile space. Um, I think that was the the start of that critical infrastructure agenda and expansion of, of holdings of, of spectrum that uh, was going to really put a, a great platform uh, under the uh, under the 3G era and of course carry it on into into 4G and beyond. So that's a that's a big ticket item for me. And the other the other one I think uh, that stands out, Graham, is this. When we when we began our research program at economic research program at AMTA, we were we were the ones that were trying to prosecute this enabling capacity of the technology in terms of productivity. Um, nowadays, uh, we don't need to we don't need to prosecute that 
that agenda anymore because it's it's now well established and well known. So um, getting that economic uh, platform in place was incredibly important. What was your most difficult challenge? Look, it's always it's the unity ticket that is always. Um, the gold dust uh, of an industry group like AMTA. Um, and to the to the great credit of the members of the industry, um, most of the time when they get around the, the AMTA board table, the, the intense competitive nature of the sector is parked at the door and we come together and we think about the sector uh, as a whole. Um, and that's always worked incredibly well. When that doesn't work well, the challenges uh, really go uh, up a notch. Um, but for the most part, we've, we've done extremely well in that, in that space. Um, if, I, if I go back and I look at disappointments and, and things that uh, I, I wish that, uh, that they'd gone a bit better, um, Probably some of the some of the deployment related regula- regulatory reform agendas that we've been prosecuting. I, I wish they'd moved more more quickly and and been better understood uh, by government because I still think that's a point of vulnerability that we have, and of course that is very much in play uh, right at this moment when when the uh, the evolution of five G is continuing. Okay, now Australia is ranked um, in terms of mobile connectivity measures, number one in some ranking. What's the secret to our national success in mobile? Look, I think the, I think the sector is, is, it's been vibrant. Um, we are a mobile nation. The level of competition has, has, has driven uh, the, the industry to, to be uh, incredibly innovative, and, and aggressive in their offerings to the consumer and the customer. Um, you take, for example, the GSMA Mobile Connectivity Index. We've been, we've ranked number one for the last six years. And you look at the parameters that are assessed to form that index. Um, we've got great infrastructure. We've got great content. We've got a we've got a, a market that is ready for us. Um, all of these things have. have gelled together to, to, to make a, a, a really, really strong sector. Um, I, I particularly go back to the, the attitude of government. They've, they've, they've allowed that co-regulatory model to, to remain in place. We've, we've had sufficient flexibility to just get on with it and let the market dynamics play. Um, and, of course, that has been a great outcome for customers, it's been a great outcome for industry, um, and it's been a great outcome for the nation because it's such an enabling technology. Now, you mentioned some of those challenges and vulnerabilities before. Um, uh, do they, th- uh, in any shape or form, threaten our ability to stay as a sort of top five or top three mobile nation in the world? Certainly, as we uh, uh, continue the momentum in the five G. Uh, era, um, we can't escape the reality that networks are going to need to become denser. We are going to need to ask more of the community in terms of their willingness to 
accept higher levels of infrastructure uh, in the in their uh, built environment in the in the community. Yeah. They absolutely crave the connectivity that we offer, the data services that we offer, and that is going to continue uh, at a pace. But we've got to get a, the, the balance right, and the balance is between the regulatory settings and industry's own communication activities in the, com- in the community to bring people along with us. They, weren't, they, they perhaps won't always like it, but they always want the connectivity. And I go back to what made the early evolution of mobile such a, such a success, and that was the federal government stepping in with things like Schedule 3, like powers and immunities uh, within the Act. That gave us a pathway for efficient deployment. That has never been more relevant than it is today in the 5G space, given the agenda that we are that we are facing. Okay, now for yourself, um, uh, do you have any plans for the future at this stage? Look, Graham, uh, it's it's a uh, it's no secret. I'm going to take a break. Um, I I can't envisage stepping too far away from the sector. To be honest. Um, a couple of my directors uh, have chided me that uh, they can't see me getting uh, getting off the leash that easily. Um, so I'll be around, um, but clearly um, I'm 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 not out there on the hunt for a, a full time role. Um, but I, I still have a passion for the sector, and and I'm sure I'm going to be uh, uh, well. I hope I might get an opportunity to give more. Um, in the in the coming months and years, well, I think everyone who knows what what you've done for the industry would agree that you've made an enormous contribution. And uh, you know, especially from our view here at Comms Day, you've participated in most, if not all, of our conferences over the past uh, uh, fifteen years. So you you probably actually hold the record <laughs> as the um, speaker with the highest appearances. So thank you from Comms Day, you know, for for what you've done for us and and for the industry generally. Well, and and, it, and and right back at you, Graham, because you know, you know there's uh, nobody in the sector that doesn't uh, avidly look every morning at, uh, at at what Comms Day is covering for the day, um, and your events and and your uh, your uh, service to the sector uh, is is unparalleled. And I've been a very willing and very grateful uh, participant in that. So uh, yeah, really appreciate that opportunity that you've afforded me. Well, on to Optus Vice President, Regulatory and Public Affairs, Andrew Sheridan. Optus, Australia's number two telco, are holding a major business update with the media this week. And one of the topics they'll be discussing is the challenges facing investment incentives in the telecom sector. I had a chat with Andrew uh, prior to this event uh, where he previewed it for us. Thank you, Graham, and good to talk to you again. Obviously, being relatively new to the role as CEO of Optus, um, Kelly's really providing a business update on our priorities, and particularly um, from Optus's perspective, our plans to sort of generate um, sustainable growth. Um, so I think what 
people can expect that the update is really some information around our strategic priorities with, without sort of giving the farm away. Um, we'll talk about our product, some of our content initiatives and service offerings. We'll also hear from um, our sort of MDs of marketing and revenue, um, our managing director of Optus Enterprise, and also our managing director of network who will talk to some of our exciting plans around our sort of new technology and investments in what is um, one of Australia's premium sort of mobile networks. Um, so obviously a fair amount of input and information about us, what we've done, where we're at now, where we're sort of heading towards and what we're looking at doing. But I think Kelly will also sort of talk a little bit more expansively around the importance of the Australian telecommunication sector. I mean, it's clear that we are critical infrastructure. And I guess with that, um, really important to people's lifestyles, the economy, and ultimately the future success of our nation. So I think she'll talk to that. She'll give some perhaps evidence of that. I mean, we've seen it through the bushfires and the pandemic, just how critical um, communications has been to keeping people, um, communities, and businesses connected together. Now, now, I've been watching some of Optus's communications with, with government consultations and so on on this topic with some interest, you know, and that is that, that telecommunications is critical infrastructure. But I'm also seeing a theme emerging with Optus that, that you're arguing that the returns on investment are getting to um, quite low levels and perhaps unsustainable levels. Yeah, look, I'm happy to do that. And again, it's one of the things that Kelly will pick up, um, um, which is really around the need for us to look forward and recognising how critical communications is to, the, I think, the future success of the economy and society. Um, it's important that we take that long-term view and start to sort of think about how we can nurture and grow our sector. So... Uh, you know, and I think unfortunately things aren't all plain sailing. Um, you know, we'll we'll outline some of the challenge that challenges that the industry's been facing around, um, you know, investment and the need to sort of for us to effectively address some of these challenges if we're going to make the sorts of investments that's going to take our sector forward. So we'll talk to things around profitability that technology cycles are getting ever shorter and that the investment requirements are increasing in an environment where actually we've got um, probably historic low return on invested capital. Now, that should be something that is obviously concerning for companies in the sector, but it should also be something that's concerning for policymakers. So I think we're at a time where there's an opportunity to reflect on how important our infrastructure is to think about how we can further incentivize investments through setting the, getting the right policy settings to do that. Um, and, you know, we've had a good track record, you know, in, in, in communications policy. You know, we, we've often led the world in some of the thinking in the past, and maybe there's a, an opportunity for us to sort of bring some of that back to the forefront and think not inwardly in terms of how we... Um, you know, set parameters around the, um, our sector, but how we grow and expand the sector, if that makes sense. 
Okay, now in 2021, there's two big opportunities um, for policy reset in, in the form of 5G spectrum auctions, one at the start of the year and another at the end of the year. What would you like to see happen there? Look, I think with Spectrum's a really good example of, of may, maybe there's an opportunity to start sort of rethinking differently around Spectrum as um, a very important strategic asset that can underpin the long-term success of um, the sector, but also the, the economy. Um, there are times you can look back and see how Spectrum has been brought to market in a fairly ad hoc way, in ways that are designed to sort of generate significant revenue. Um, that's not the way we should be looking at this type of asset. We should be looking at it in terms of what's the best way to drive investment in our future infrastructure and technology and unlock and maximize future benefits for businesses and consumers. Good example, I think, um, is the 700 auction. Um, really critical to 4G. But the way that auction was designed, the reality is is that quite a lot of spectrum was left on the table. Vodafone didn't bid, and Optus probably bought less spectrum than it probably otherwise would because such a high price was set on that spectrum. I think in this auction, one of the key opportunities is to look at um, what the competition caps are in terms of who can buy what spectrum. And I think it's important, I think, that we recognize that across the different bands of low band spectrum, they're very substitutable. They're all now being earmarked, whether it's 850, 700 or 900, they're all being earmarked for 4G and 5G. So it's important that to look at those spectrum bands in their totality and think about how you set sort of um, competition caps, who can buy what, having um, regard to what the existing holdings are of Spectrum because what we ultimately want is a, a sort of a level playing field in Spectrum so that we've got the maximum opportunities to invest in the technology in the future of our sector. Okay. Um, many of the things that are impacting the industry, though, are sort of out of the control of individual parties. I mean, obviously, the, the state of the economy due to the pandemic and as you mentioned, compressing technology cycles, it's its not something a minister can snap his fingers and, and make go away. So what what else exactly can a government do to, to assist the telecom industry in this situation? I, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not a question of government snapping their fingers and everything will be fine. But I think their role is to set the right environment um, through policy that encourages investment provides a level playing field and takes any sort of potential distortion out of markets. So we've got those um, clear opportunities to sort of invest. I mean, another example I think will be, you know, the MBN. And I won't get into the debate about specifics around the MBN, but I think I would argue that you know, we've been on a journey with the NBN. It's critical national infrastructure. We've seen how important a role it's played um, during the pandemic. It's got a very strong future in our um, communications ecosystem. But nevertheless, um, I don't think we're quite where we hoped to be when we started on this journey. So I think there's still some reform work to complete to put that, you know, the NBN into a sort of a place that allows for a sustainable um, 
um, fixed broadband market. So that's an area where government can focus in terms of some of those big policy decisions that, again, are looking at sort of sustainability of the whole sector, removing distortions, etc. Okay, well, we'll look forward to the briefing and you'll be able to read all about it in Comms Day on Tuesday, the 1st of December. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks very much, Graeme. And, um, yeah, really look forward to um, reading um, uh, about the, the briefing. And, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to chat. Okay, and the Kelly that Andrew referred to there is Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin, who's the CEO of Optus. And, uh, of course, she spoke with this uh, broadcast just two weeks ago. taking a look at the week that was uh, with Rowan Peace, the executive editor of Comms Day. Hey, Graham. So uh, let's get straight into it. Um, probably the biggest news of the week, uh, I thought anyway, uh, was um, the Victorian budget, which uh, dedicated a cool half a billion dollars plus for telecommunication projects. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so there was, there was quite a bit of a telco money tucked away in it, really. The um, I, I guess the kind of the really interesting thing was a new gigabit state proposal that they had. So there wasn't um, a lot of detail in the budget documents, but essentially it was a quarter of a billion dollars, which has been allocated for co-funding um, what's described as business-grade broadband connectivity for Victorian regional um, towns. So the the documents say that it is in partnership with the Commonwealth Government, although it's not quite clear to me how it fits together with things like the Regional Connectivity Program. Then, on the other hand, NBN's kind of a rollout of fibre to regional businesses. Um, the, the name obviously kind of echoes Gig State in New South Wales, um, which, as we know, seems to be in some kind of state of limbo at the moment. Um, but yeah, but but obviously, like Gig State doesn't quite, unless they revamp, it doesn't have that same um, emphasis on the working with the Commonwealth. Um, I, I think the other thing, actually, I should say, Simon, Simon was saying that he's he's getting sick of Gig State. He's looking forward to Terra State. Um, which <laughs> uh, the the other thing is actually that was in the budget uh, was the three hundred million for mobile black spots, um, which is kind of interesting too. Yeah, certainly um, interesting from the point of view that in the last couple of federal rounds of the black spot funding, they've been struggling to find projects to finance. So you've got 300 million in Victoria and there's still a similar amount in New South Wales. It seems like a lot of money in search of projects that um, aren't really there. But anyhow, moving on, um, whilst we're on the regional theme, Walker, uh, fantastic city. Um, I understand that a, a... a very interesting company there, is kicking some goals internationally. Tell us about it. Yeah, so ZFI is based in Wagga Wagga, and I had a good chat to the, um, the CEO, Dan Winson. Uh, basically, they, they build out kind of like Wi-Fi products for farms, but they, um, they actually recently took home half a million bucks from a New York-based competition for like ag tech, which I think is um, quite, a, quite a big win for a little uh, Australian startup. So they're, they're looking at things like, you know, making a power-efficient kind of solar-powered Wi-Fi products and also a kind of portable hotspot that you can... Um, essentially attached to the side of your tractor with magnets. So I think, um, like, in, in the wake of that, um, that win at the Grow New York competition, they're actually uh, looking at, you know, the opportunities to uh, expand into Rochester, New York State. 
And they're, they're actually, according to Dan, they're seeing quite a bit of interest from like farm equipment manufacturers and dealerships. And I, the issue there is that you have a lot of these kind of new high-tech tractors that have um, you know, all sorts of like amazing remote operations and analytics capabilities built in, but the, you're still struggling with the issue of having enough bandwidth to actually kind of communicate back to base. Okay, well, speaking of uh, Australians making it big on the world stage, um, another such individual is David Yule, who, who many in the industry will know from from his days um, working around the data center and fiber areas. Now, he he's, um, now works in the finance world, and he's he's got an interesting new project in the data center field. Yeah, so David, you're obviously like you know well known for like role next gen and Metronode and AAPT. So I had a chat to him about um, and, and now um, obviously he runs a 360 Capital's digital infrastructure business. So I had a chat to him about this new fund that uh, 360 Capital's launching. So it's called the Global Data Center Securities Fund, and it's going to list on the ASX. So essentially, be um, an ETF that invests in uh, listed data centers. So it will take a stake in the likes of Equinix and Chindata, and actually be an easy way for people to get some kind of exposure to the data center space. So uh, I actually spoke to David about a whole range of things too, like in- including the kind of um, the really strong appetite for investment in digital infrastructure among some of the kind of big institutional investors. And that's been reflected in things like obviously the kind of like uh, the bidding war over Opticom was first state super. And then I guess, you know, on another level also Telstra as Telstra's move to kind of restructure into service and infrastructure businesses also kind of reflects the fact that you have these kind of like big pension funds and like that are finding some way to get their money to work. And just uh, before we wrap up this segment, um, I filed a story for Comms Day that appeared on Friday um, regarding the revelation of the value of MBN Co.'s planned bond issue, um, a cool $10 billion, which is a lot bigger than what was thought when news of it first came out 10 days ago or so. Um, I tried to do a little bit of research on what was the biggest ever corporate bond issue in Australia, I couldn't find any bigger. That doesn't mean there hasn't been one, though, because there aren't very good records in that area. But $10 billion, pretty amazing stuff. And uh, definitely a, a pretty good sign that the markets like what MBN's all about. Um, not, not least the fact that it's it's uh, implicitly backed by a government guarantee, I guess. Anyway, on that note, thank you for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers. Space, the final frontier. Well, I can't think of a better way to introduce Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day, who uh, spent this week at the Australian Space Forum. How are you, Simon? Pretty good, thanks, Graham. And yes, it was all virtual, but uh, we were definitely there in spirit. Well, I, uh, this was the 10th Australian Space Forum. Uh, it's quite fascinating. Uh, if you look back, the first event that they had had only uh, 50 people, uh, essentially. This one had more than 1,200 people from industry, universities, and so on, all uh, dialing in uh, to watch uh, a whole bunch of uh, panel sessions talking about where we're standing at the moment within the industry. It was kicked off by the Premier, Stephen Marshall, and uh, at the same day, uh, South Australia also launched their space sector strategy, uh, quite an interesting document because, of course, uh, South Australia is one of the key areas and they want to become a centre of gravity for all of the future uh, space activities that happen uh, across Australia. Now, if you remember, the um, federal government has a plan to have 12 billion 
and 20,000 jobs by 2030 in the space sector. And of course, uh, South Australia uh, is very keen to take a big chunk of all of that. So uh, at the moment, um, uh, they have around 80 space-related organizations, companies and education institutions already uh, located, co-located uh, in South Australia. Big uh, links to defense there as well. And uh, as far as the state governments are concerned, they want to work uh, in a whole of government policy. So they want to be very much aligned with what's happening nationally. But the key areas that they're going to be looking to hope to develop are uh, launch capability, uh, which is uh, what they're doing with Southern Launch. And uh, they're going to put a a state task force together to actually uh, make that thing a reality. And uh, they want to play a leading role in emerging technologies such as lasers for data communication, quantum technologies for secure communication, and hybrid radio and optical communications. So uh, one of the other areas they talked about, which was quite interesting, was they really want to kick up their ground infrastructure. So uh, we could see a lot more satellite ground stations uh, and the approval processes uh, for all of those. So uh, quite a lot of activity. They really want to be uh, strong on this. Okay, now you uh, mentioned defence there. I understand that they made quite a few announcements themselves this week. That's right. Uh, Defence was one of the key uh, areas for space. Uh, as, as we know, the um, ADF is going to be uh, or has been given $7 billion uh, to spend on space in the next decade as part of the 2020 Defence Strategic Update. So it was fascinating to see some of the sessions where uh, we had uh, the American Air Force talking, uh, uh, plus uh, representatives from the Australian Air Force, uh, talking about their key requirements going forward. And you could really see how closely the private satellite companies were going to be using and relying uh, on uh, defence initiatives uh, in the space sector. Uh, To give an example, it wasn't actually at the conference, but also this week uh, the government announced that the Next Generation Technologies Fund will be contributing $6.6 million in funding and support for ideas and proposals from industry and academia to identify and pursue research, design and testing aspects for sensor payloads. All of that is going back and feeding back into the ADF, essentially. And uh, at the same time, uh, we had an announcement earlier this week about the fact that uh, two uh, Uni of South Australia research and development projects that are going to add to capacities of small satellites uh, have won support in the latest round of the South Australian Defence Innovation Partnership Cooperative Research Grants. And that's uh, quite a mouthful, but you can see there's a plenty of activity from Defence.